What are you two talking about? Oh, nothing. Just the end of the world. Welcome, everybody, to Who Pods the Watchmen, your comprehensive companion podcast for the upcoming HBO. I don't know if it's a miniseries. I'm thinking it's an ongoing series from uh, from HBO and Damon Lindelof called Watchmen. It is going to be a remix, I think is what they're calling it. It's going to be continuing on the saga that was first started in the comic, and then there was that really killer movie that Zack Snyder made. And then they're going to... I, I'm not sure if this is going to be an alternate reality or if it's going to potentially be just what happened in the events of the comic in the future. But I'm Grant Davis, your host, and with me is special guest Clay LaPointe. Hello, hello. Clay, I'm very excited to have you on here. Mike was unable to join us for this episode, and I know you're a big fan of um, – Comics. I'm not sure how much of a fan you are of The Watchmen. In fact, the other day you were just saying that you have some issues with uh, 80s comics in general. Yeah, I'm not necessarily – I might not be the best guy to be on this, but I'm here and <laughs> we're going to do it. You are the best guy to be on here. Um, yeah, the best you, available. You literally live across the street too. You're really close to the studio. The best of the ability is availability. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to be talking about – Issue four of the comic, this is the one where a uh, very emo Dr. Manhattan builds his Elsa crystal castle on Mars and time trips a bit. But before we get into that, Clay, you haven't been on the episodes with us, so I kind of wanted to do a little bit of a rewind and get your thoughts on the comic so far. I mean, I know it's it's a lot, <laughs> to kind of delve into. But what are you thinking with the first three chapters? How long has it been since you've read this, you know, all that? Yeah, so I think I should preface this uh, with the fact that, you know, I think this is one of those comics that I read back when we were in undergrad, like 15 years ago. Right, I, I think, Yeah, I think I remember reading it. I'm pretty sure I read it. But it's like, if you ask like a literature major if they've read Ulysses, they probably remember reading it, but they don't remember much about it. I feel like this is kind of like this comic with me. Um, I definitely did not watch the movie. In fact, I remember trying to watch it multiple times on an airplane. I would stop it, go back to other movies, finish those entire other movies, then go back to this movie and just get bored again. And kind of, I did that three or four times and finally gave up, and I never gave it a second chance. It's so funny because it's it's all spectacle, and you still got bored. With yeah, it. and I know I think you've gotten on to me before about uh, about trying to watch movies in airplanes. So. I don't know, I mean maybe I need to give it another chance, but um, it's not the ideal look. Yeah, so 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 basically, you know, and for this podcast, you know, we talked about it last week, and I've read only the first four issues, so I don't remember anything that happens after this. I'm kind of right here as a new reader for all intents and purposes. Awesome. So you know, the first three interesting. They held my attention. Um, I don't know if this is a great book for what it did to the genre, or if it's a great book on its own. 
You know, I mean, you can you can kind of mature the genre of comic books, and it's important looking back. But is it actually an enjoyable read on its own? And I guess maybe you know, I think it is. I think this issue for me was actually by far the most enjoyable issue. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you. Ha- yeah, it sounds like you agree. Uh, I'm of the four we've gone through again so far. I just love the format. What's going on with this one? It felt like, especially with that last one, chapter three, I was a little bit complaining about it because it seemed a little bit too clever for its own good, how every line was paralleling a separate storyline, almost a little bit too heavy-handedly. And I was like, I, I get it. You're, yeah. you know, you're I mean, a wordsmith. <laughs> I, I, I actually like that because I thought it did show a good amount of structure and a good, a, a good amount of awareness with the you know intertwining storylines and dealing with these individual characters obviously on an individual level, and then also this social malaise that's happening that kind of obviously in the 80s reflected the uh, fear of like mutual annihilation yes. right, between the great superpowers. And I think that you know the start of issue four, I really keyed in on that right away in the first couple of pages because at the end of, chapter, at the end of issue three, he's t- you know, he's, the, the newspaper vendor sees that Russians invade Afghanistan. So now you know, John has gone off to – what is it? The moon or Mars or whatever, right? Yeah, he goes to Mars. He goes yeah. to Mars and now right away the Russians make a move. And so now the dominoes are falling. People are trying to line up. What's, you know, the, the world powers are lining up um, their weapons and everything and he's just so afraid. And I kind of got so tired of that whole general social malaise type thing. Like we – I mean we get it. We get it from comics in the 80s. We're hit over the head that New York was gross and grimy. You know, that's why I don't like comics in the 80s is because we always see a disgusting Gotham City and we see these punk hairdos and we see this stuff and it just doesn't resonate with me. You know, it's but, just but, – uh, But what if Joel Schumacher makes a movie about exactly. it? Then it's OK. <laughs> he makes it cool again. It's, it's bright and reflective and fluorescent. Right. Yeah. I mean yeah. we – Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, but, but for, for issue four, we really look at – instead of the macro, we're looking at the micro. And the mm. whole thing is, you know, I mean it's kind of a pause issue because nothing new happens. But we revisit, you know, this type of, like you said, emo. But for me, it's really just this idea of – obviously that is emo, right? Just self-reflection. And he's trying to figure out not the technical aspects of what happened to him because that's resolved within like three or four panels. But, but the more emotional human interactions like, whoa, what, how did I become what I am? Right. There, there's this great irony to how emotionally detached Dr. Manhattan comes across nowadays. And and yet he spends this entire issue reflecting on, I guess, either how he got that way or showing that he does still have sort of this attachment, but he doesn't – he no longer knows how to relate to that aspect of his humanity. Yeah, precisely. And I think, you know, when we look at the first page or second page, he starts off with these really short declarative sentences, right? The photograph is in my hand. Basically, this is, this is somebody who's so sick and tired of humanity and tired of this drama that he leaves and goes as far away as he can. Like, you know, no man is an island, right? And he actually goes and finds an island that only he can get to, ensuring his isolation. And then he's kind of making these short you know, when you're so stressed sometimes, right, the most mm. important thing to do or the, one of the best things to do, I think, is just to make a list, right? You make a list, you check it off, and then you get some of your sanity back because you've now st- restructured, like, your priorities, what you need to do. And he's doing that, and he's kind of saying, you know, this is photograph is in my hand. It's 1985. It's 1959. These short sentences. And then at the end, he says, I am trying to give a name to, like, what happened to me. And I think that's on page two. And so that's the first time he says, I'm trying. And we see this, we see this person with godlike abilities, and now he says, I am trying. And what he's trying to do is to understand how he got where he is. And that obviously says if he's trying, he hasn't, he hasn't understood it yet. And right. He hasn't got to the solution. So 
For for a guy who there's later in this, um, I think it's Janie who breaks it down for him. He for a guy who's able to see how all events are going to unfold in the future and how everything happened in the past, and it all seems to be happening for him simultaneously because in a way he's untethered from time, right? Um, she's she's like you can understand how everything works except for the human condition or something like that. Yeah, and, and I think she or or I forget if it was her or Lori is also talking about uh, the JFK assassination. Like you knew it was going to happen but you didn't do everything. Right. You, you, you didn't do anything. You know, and I think that I, I was kind of writing some notes on – just like maybe a page of notes here. And I kind of – at first, you know, I was getting on to him about that, kind of doing – you know, repeating what uh, Lori or – what is it, Janie? Mm-hmm. You know, what Janie they were Slater. doing. But then I kind of thought, you know – What's understandable and what's what's forgivable, right? If you all of a sudden now can see not only like visual light, but you can see infrared and then you can maybe hear and have this sonar like Daredevil. And then you have – remember that guy from Ecstatics who uh, his skin was – remember that? Remember Ecstatics? Mimic? No. No. Th- this dude had super um, sensitive skin and you could hurt him by like blowing a blade of grass on his skin. But because of that, he had great powers because he was so sensitive, he could kind of get a, you know, a feel for where you were sensitive and everything. It was like one of the, the Morlocks, right? The, the green dude that was like Maybe a super so. empath. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And he, and, and professor Xavier like taught him how to meditate or something so that he could control that, you know, kind of like how daredevil had to have that dude in the alley, teach him how to control that stuff. Right. You know, if you have all of that and even more, you know, first you're John, now you're Dr. Manhattan. How do you deal with it? You know, and so he's like, well, I don't necessarily I don't even know how to deal with like my girlfriend here. And now you're telling me how to do this. Maybe I'm afraid of, of trying to change the future. Everything's happening all at once. You know, I, I don't even understand time because I understand everything at once. You know, in reading this, we are supposed to assume that he is just checked out. He's dis- he's distant from humanity because he's no longer a part of it. He's now this godlike being and he just can't relate to us. But there are parts of of his story of him reflecting on his past that make me think that the guy just needs therapy. <laughs> I'm like, you you aren't lost to the world. You just need someone you can talk to in order to recontextualize your experience, and so you understand how you can still be one with everything else that's going on with it, around you. Because he still is. I mean, he's in love with the process. He's obviously super anal retentive and like has to control stuff and he has to m- understand stuff. He might have some OCD tendencies as well, but he still dwindles or um, uh, reminisces on these beautiful moments and wanting to recapture them in a way that makes me feel like, you know, how, how he keeps talking about um Janie buying him a beer oh, and yeah. how that was such a beautiful special moment exactly and that's frozen in time like later he revisits it and says frozen in time with that scene well literally like, whenever he's anyway. changing from his human form to now Dr. Manhattan well becomes that he talks about the you know before that the cold glass of beer mm. and the fingertips touching when he's holding that cold glass of beer and then he says and when he's in that booth it gets hot too quickly so you see that cold and hot. So his life is changing and it's changing too quickly. So I agree. You know, I think that we look at him now and I don't even remember the comics. I don't even remember reading them, but I think I did. Mm. But always 15 years later, 20 years later, what stuck with me is, yeah, you're right. This guy is someone who's seen as aloof. You always see the famous 
you know, actually, I think it's in this issue where he's sitting on, on Mars, right? And he's all alone. And if people are going to remember something from Watchmen, they're probably going to remember the smiley face with the blood. And then they're going to remember that. The blue dude me. on Mars. Yeah. Exactly. And the but, color contrast is just so visually stunning. Right, right. And, you know, for me, this issue, though, it's it's not necessarily – this doesn't show a lack of his human nature, but actually reinforces that he is indeed human because as humans, we try to understand what we're going through and what others are going through. In this whole issue, he's trying to do that. So he's lost, but he definitely still has this humanity. And I think this is the first time we've seen it. You know, you, you asked me earlier about what I thought about the first three. And this is the first – I was thinking, you know, this is the first or second time that we've seen that humanity. The first time we see him, I think he's right up against this giant supercomputer, mm. really analytical – I think the second time we see him, he's either introducing a threesome on his partner at the time and he does not know enough to, you know, maybe ask permission or see if that's a good idea first. You know, if, you, if you're trying to surprise somebody with a surprise threesome in the bedroom, it's not the best idea. And he doesn't understand that. The third time, I think, is at a funeral where, you know, everybody else has these umbrellas over them and it's raining. And I don't know if, you know, I remember there was something in the comic where, it, with the illustrations where the rain wasn't touching him or if not. I think that's in the movie. In fact, like it seems to like sizzle off yeah, okay. the skin so a little it, bit it, of uh, it, distance. It's actually in here as well. Oh, is it? Yeah, and, and I couldn't tell if maybe, you know, if that was just the illustration or what. But either way, if he if he doesn't want to get wet from rain, he doesn't have to. So you kind of know that reading it. And I thought the only other time I saw his humanity was maybe when he's in the um, – the interview? The TV studio. Exactly. And he's shocked finding out that other people are getting cancer maybe from him or there's an allegation of that. And he's shocked about it. And I remember thinking, you know, that shows that even though he can maybe not necessarily control things, but he knows the future, it doesn't matter. We're still shocked by stuff like that. Yeah. He absolutely did care. He seemed hurt by the accusation that he might be inflicting pain upon others. And then he has an emotional outburst, which seems – uncharacteristic of of the person they're trying to show him as uh, prior to that, where he says, everyone get out, and he zaps everyone from the studio. So he absolutely still has this in him, and I think it's fascinating. Uh, I know you haven't really watched the trailer, and you might not know much about what's going on in the upcoming TV show. That's right, yeah. I'm, um, I'm kind of just anti-trailer, anti-preview, just as a philosophy. Yeah, you just kind of like to go into it fresh and then and discover it. I mean, I think in Game of Thrones, when we were watching it together at the end of every episode this last year, you know, I would put my fingers in my ears and then mumble to myself while y'all watched it. Right. Yeah, right, right. But, but there's speculation that his character might be in um, in the upcoming show. And if he does, you know, pop back up on Earth, I think it'll be even more telling that this is just a temporary phase for him. This idea that he isolated himself. He went on this this uh, emotional sabbatical, this um, self-imposed isolation so that he can get in touch with himself and maybe cope with his otherness. I mean, in a way, it, it feels like he is kind of going through a journey like – Anyone else who has to kind of rediscover their identity, but he's having to do it after he already had an established life that he was comfortable with. This is an unwilling, like identity crisis that he's he has to kind well, of go and, through, and it's the second one he's gone through. And everyone is treating him like a monster, and and at a certain point, you stop having an emotional connection to the things that you're able to do because it comes so effortlessly. So he's able to watch someone get killed or vaporize a gun out of the comedian's hands if he wanted to. He decided not to, so he just watched um comedian uh kill the lady he impregnated in Vietnam. Right. Like 
dispassionately. And I don't necessarily think this is like, oh, that's a clear cut case of he's lost his humanity, but that he just he doesn't know how to frame everything anymore. Well, and I think too, you know, not even during the, the yeah, exactly that he doesn't know how to frame everything. And I don't I don't know if he got to that point where he doesn't know how to frame anything. But it's just again what I what I said was what's understandable and what's forgivable. He's going through like we see this trope a lot. I don't know if it's a trope, but we see this a lot with characters. You know, once you take so much in and you're like one with the universe, or you're like the Watcher or something. Mm. There's inaction because it's almost like once this like flows through you, you know, like Ralph Waldo Emerson talked about the invisible eyeball or something like that where you just see everything and everything comes through you. You know, like Mahayana Buddhism or whatever, you try to get rid of all this suffering and this temporariness and then be kind of come one with it. Although I guess in Mahayana Buddhism, you come back to earth to help others. But, you know, there's that general sense of of once you're taking all of this in, you really can't act. And that's that's kind of the easy part. I mean, it's not easy because comics aren't real, so none of us have these superpowers. But like the hard part is harnessing that to do something else. So I always think, you know, here we're in our lives, you know, things kind of trickle down, drops of water, and it's like one after the other, left to right. For him, think about a waterfall. And so they're all individual droplets, but they're all slamming down. So who knows? You know, maybe 1% of them is there seeing that, uh, seeing the comedian shoot that woman. Is that, was it the comedian who did that? Yeah. Yeah. But the other 99 water droplets at the same time are happening in all these other places. And sure, his brain can handle it. But as we see, he can't really process things emotionally and doesn't really know what humans need and what we need. So maybe that's kind of part of his inaction. I kind of think that's forgivable. You know? Yeah. If, if he is omnipresent in that regard, he, he exists at all time periods at the same time. And he's, he's time tripping in such a crazy way that – he can't contextualize one event. I mean, this this comic, this issue does a fantastic job of how it pivots back and forth. How it he he finds an event that's happening right now and finds commonality with all these other um, some big and some very insignificant events in his past, and they're all happening simultaneously. And he he keeps kind of reiterating that. I, I think this does. A fantastic job. I mean, Alan Moore is just obviously one of the greatest writers he decided to choose. Is he? I think he's fantastic. Yeah. I, I think how he's able to translate. Is he good for 1986 or is he good for 2019 or both? I think there's there's elements of him that seem ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. and But he's he was obviously appreciated in his time then too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is – this was a New York Times bestseller, one of the best in novels, not just yeah, graphic novels. So was Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> <laughs> this is New York Times. They no, don't make right. mistakes, right. yeah. Clay. So, well, actually, th- this brings me back to something. You know, you just talked about how this issue relates to he's kind of stacking all of these times, you know, 1986, and then he's like 1959, and then he's back in World War or Vietnam, whatever. You you like it in this episode or this issue, but you said you did not like it and you thought he was being too smart in issue three. What, what What's the difference to you? Uh, I, I don't find that there is a wink and a nod of, of clever wordplay so heavy-handedly in this. In fact, like very minimally, it, it seems like given that the voice, the narrator of this issue is solely uh, Dr. Manhattan, yeah. we're not dealing with him trying to – cleverly relate relate um, what's going on with his panel with what's going on um, in a, a side-running story. And it seemed like every single switchback between scenes, there's 
Um, there's an interviewer guy saying, talking about um, all of Dr. Manhattan's friends dying of cancer. And he says, I believe it was quite sudden and quite painful. And they cut to the scene of painful and sudden fighting between Night Owl and Silk Spectre. This is just one example I flipped to, but it's every single panel. Every time you yeah, change you just, the transition. Yeah, you just flip to a random page, yeah. by the way. Yeah, that's great. It doesn't matter which one I do. The whole the whole one is like that. And there's a couple that are just grown heavy, like like too heavy handed. Something about like seeing someone, he, uh, Silk Spectre saying like, Oh, um, Dr. Manhattan only saw me through uh, a fog while the steam of the tea or coffee oh, yeah. is being made over the top of her face. I'm like, I get it. Right. I get it. Let's, right. let's chill out with all this. So I didn't think that it was being heavy handed here. I just thought it, there's an elegance to how he's telling the story. And hey, I don't know if we, we mentioned this. Um, issue four is called Watchmaker. And how this plays with his past that he came from being a watchmaker or at least a protege, an apprentice to his father being a a master watchmaker was really, um, I thought, perfectly illustrates and in a way contrasts the parallel um, path that Albert Einstein takes, especially when they hammer that home with a quote at the end. Right. And, you know, I don't know about – I don't know Einstein's history – too well. But I did think that this was such a great theme because it didn't hit you over the head, but it still was present enough to frame everything. Mm -hmm. And for me, the idea of that kind of granular precision of these old mechanical watches versus um, the unpredictable nature of humans and what's going on in the world and what's going on in in these interpersonal uh, connections he has in relationships with Laurie and Janie and, you know, other people. And how – I think that was like one of the main – um, kind of themes in this in this issue was what's precise, what's controllable, what's predictable, and what's not. Right? Yeah, like th- this guy is a guy who was very used to everything being structured and predictable, and he could manage um, all the situations in his life. A watch breaks, I know how to handle that. I I can figure out all the beats of my relationship with Janie when it's it's at the beginning phase of a relationship. Everything's easy then. When it gets complicated, obviously oh. he just ghosts out and gets jailbait next door. <laughs> he even says something like, you know, we both knew it was going to happen when we went to the hotel room. Yeah. You know, and that's young love and you know the chemistry there and you know what's going to happen, right? But that just shows you that he was actually a present – he was a present human being there at that point. And so we did understand. you know. But I think that it's interesting. I, I kind of was thinking what's precise, what's predictable and what's not. And I'll get to this in a second. Overwhelmingly, you know – He's the one who is unpredictable in a lot of ways, and he's the one who stands out, and that makes sense. But also what's unpredictable is plans and things that happen around you. He was going to be a a watchmaker like his dad, and then there was World War II, right, Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. And now all of a sudden he has to go into a new new field, and he obviously excels at it. And then he kind of just goes through that, and he even says something like, you know, others are making decisions for me my whole life. Which is a bizarre thing to say whenever you are the most powerful person in the world, right? And yet he says like they're trying to put an atom or something on his forehead on his costume and then they're trying to make him – they make him wear clothes. And he kind of like takes that back you know, little by little. Yeah. But he, he mentions that a few times in this issue like how his life's passed by and others are in control of him, which yeah. is pretty weird. He, he's, a, he's a puppet. He is a, a puppet to the government and he seems to operate at their, their bidding. But why? But but why? Only because it seems like the path of least resistance. It doesn't seem like he likes to make waves. It doesn't. It seems like he doesn't want to argue with anyone. 
like um, Janie wants the fight and he's like, I don't really care. It, right. It's like that episode of The Office. Remember when Jim and Pam are like having trouble and they're they're breaking apart and he, and Jim's like, I just don't want to fight. And she's like, I really think you should stay and fight. And it's like this mm-hmm. beautiful moment of like – Be an active participant. Yeah. I need right. you to actually engage with me. Let's have the ugly fight so that you are there with me yeah. and let's get past this together. And yeah. I'm like he – doesn't he seems to not do that? He doesn't challenge himself. He doesn't challenge others. Okay. He 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 doesn't know how to relate to anything. So then let, let's look at what he you know what does what does propel him? And I guess my first thing is why Lori? And I don't understand it. And I'm not even talking about the youth thing because I actually don't know. Like you you mentioned that I guess she, he does say she was very a lot younger. I don't know if that means twenty well, J- Janie or repeat, eighteen or what. Janie toggled between ages a couple times, but then he straight up also says uh, he was hooking up with a sixteen year old. So oh, like up to this point, I missed that. Yeah, when when okay. he got with her, she was sixteen. Okay, different time. So <laughs> it was a different time. It was a different time. It was I mean, the fifties or sixties. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you know what. What was he – I mean obviously we, I don't want to say this tongue-in-cheek like what was he looking to do there? But what was he looking to do there? What, what drew him there? And was it, it – it really couldn't have been something. Well, maybe it was. Was it really something with Janie getting older and he saw her getting older and he was this eternal 30-year-old blue guy? Well, yeah. I mean, you, oh, OK. I mean I, I suspect he was suffering from blue balls. <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 I suppose it, it, in the grand scheme – if we take for we take it as a fact that he sees into the future and knows how all these events are going to play out, maybe it was destiny for him. But right, if if time is a stream and he exists outside of that stream and can slip in at any point and and see where his future is heading, then it was it was inevitable. I mean, at at a certain point, he's talking about like when he's forming that. Um, Crystal Castle on yeah. Mars. Yeah. He talks about like, uh, I don't know if um, this is this uh, shape of this thing was already present before I made it or and I, my hand's just like a guiding hand. What does he say? A world grows around me. Am I shaping it or do its predetermined contours guide my hand? So he doesn't seem to really understand whether or not um, there's predestination or if you make your own fate. Yeah. And, you know, that was just curious to me. And that scares me. That scares me because we have this great issue of self-reflection and we see over and over and over where he does not where – he, where he understands a ton. But the one thing he doesn't understand is just human interaction and what we need. I mean even when he talks to the retired – uh man, I'm awful. Hollis, he, right? And he's going to start being a car mechanic, and he talks about electric cars. Right. For him, it makes sense because everything's kind of passe to him. Everything's like a fait accompli because he's seen the future, he's seen the past. He's kind of just living in this, like I said, waterfall of time. These droplets everywhere. But he basically does this self reflection. Okay, he goes to therapy, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then what does he do? He doubles down on his comfort zone. Right. He finds order and structure and builds a palace that will reflect what he wants. Rather than bend and rather than go back and try to say sorry and actually not lie, like when he lies to Janie and says he'll always love her, 
not go back and try to bend and, you know, and modify his own behaviors. He just sits out there by himself and builds a palace that reflects exactly what he wants to be. And he even says, he, like you said, he says, I don't know if this structure or, or, you know, underneath, I don't know what's creating this. It's like, dude, you're creating it. Yeah. And you're trying – and now – you know, like I said, I don't remember reading the rest of this series. I think I did, but I don't know. But does that mean that he's now going to go back to Earth and try to create some other type of structure, you know, on unpredictable, an unpredictable humanity? Because we know where that's going to go, and that's that's dangerous, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of the the point of having a character like this. I mean, he's he's essentially Superman. I mean, or what, what was the ancillary from the old Charlton comics? Um, Captain, no, uh, I forget who it I'm is. I'm not the guy to ask. Brandon Routh plays his character on um, one of those DC shows. But, yeah, um, I, I feel like there's a, a lack of accountability from him. It, it, when he kind of washes his hands, if he doesn't actually know the future, he can be like, in an hour from now, I'm going to think about my father while I'm sitting in a castle. You could plan that out and then make that happen. That that doesn't exactly. mean that it actually already happened. It, like when you control, what, like how everything can happen, that doesn't mean that's how it will happen. And that's just how you decided to make it happen. And if there's collateral damage, so be it. I mean, we've already seen little homie uh, justify his actions when he was doing the DC riot uh, control, right? Right, right? And he put everybody at home, which was just a pretty badass move. But then he says later, two people died or two or three died of heart attacks, but more would have died uh, if he had not done that. And you know what? That might be right. But who is he to play God? And obviously, that's what this whole thing is about. Who watches the Watchmen, right? But it just, it sets an ominous tone here. And if he's already willing to justify his actions and he already thinks he's this superhero, this superhuman, I mean, look, let's look at like Dostoevsky with uh, Crime and Punishment. That was somebody who thought he was too smart. He thought he was too powerful and he did not have to play by humanity's rules. And the whole point was he kills this person and then it's the emotional ram. Well, you know, there's more than one point to the book, but he kills someone. Um, and then he has to deal with the emotional ramifications and kind of running away from the, the actual, you know, bureaucracy and stuff coming to get him. So I mean, we have the same thing here. Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding, but uh, until that's made into a comic book, I've not read it. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. I, it's yeah. probably made into an old Soviet one, just an awful. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those uh, nickel ones. It's just also full of like smut. Exactly. It's no good. Yeah. Um. So uh, let's let's take a step back here for the structure. I thought it's it's kind of fascinating how this is also structured in a way that like it's it's this bizarre autobiography. That that jumps backwards and forwards in time, and then around halfway, it kind of turns into like a straight up horror movie. <laughs> like when, and, and then it, it's more like um, what, what, what's that called? The the memoir of the Invisible Man or something. But it's it's him when he goes, he gets trapped in the uh, cell, and then we see how he starts terrorizing this facility. And he starts off as just a circulatory system with some eyes. And but is then he actually trying to or is he just trying to come back together? Yeah, he's not haunting yeah, them intentionally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I just like the artwork and like how the story goes. I'm like, oh, this is actually kind of creepy and a, a little scary. Ex- what's and, going on? And with let's like look at one. what comes back first. It's the brain and the eyes, mm-hmm. which is exactly all he is now. <laughs> you know, he's, yeah. just, he's just intellect and, and all seeing. Yeah. Where's that heart? He needs oh, heart. That was beautiful. <laughs> um, chills. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned this moment where he's talking to Hollis and Hollis is like, oh, yeah, I'm going to retire now. 
and I'm going to go ahead and start uh, uh, repairing cars. I understand cars. And I, this is a little bit of an aside, but I just love the part where he's like, oh, yeah, especially like electric cars. Now we're going to be moving to that. And Hollis is like, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> did did we just switch? Like it, it's it reminds me of No Country for Old Men. It's like I, I can't keep with what's changing and I'm going to go back to something that's comfortable for me. Yeah. And then in comes Dr. Manhattan and goes, oh, that one thing that's comfortable for you, that's gone as well. <laughs> well, do you, I, I think you might have been there with me like the week or two before I left for the Peace Corps. Uh, went into REI to get some clothes, which was ridiculous because you just end up wearing like cheap T-shirts from – you know, I don't know if people know this, but Africa is covered in clothing for the losers – like every Super Bowl loser, yeah. every political committee, you know, so that's just all, all you the extra shirts that it, they made. Yeah, exactly. All the Sports Illustrated shirts they don't use. Yeah. So I go in there and I was working at the time with this person whose parents were in the cotton industry, right? And they like were cotton producers in South Texas or something like that. And I walk in, I'm talking about, oh, this cotton shirt looks nice, whatever. I didn't know anything about cotton, but I mentioned it. And the REI employee goes, cotton's an obsolete fabric. He goes, you need to go to this. And it was just like, it's the same thing here. You know, it's like that annoying <laughs> nephew or that annoying cousin you see at Christmas. It just ruins, it just harshes everybody's buzz, you know, it just <laughs> rains on their parade. It's like, oh God, this guy's back. I just you know? want to fix cars. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, as this kind of charts through, we see a little bit more of his interaction with Ozymandias, which I know that you um, – you don't. You haven't read this again in a while, and I'm not sure if you remember how everything plays out. That's the rich. That, that's the guy that's the self-made. Yeah, you, trillionaire. You, you yeah. do kind of remember where his path goes. Absolutely not. Really? Oh, okay. Well, I I don't want to go too what's much the, into what's it. What's the I etymology of? I mean, is that was that cre- is that a coin term? Ozymandias, or do they take that? Yeah, it's a it's an Egyptian um, okay. god. There's a great episode of Breaking Bad. About Ozymandias. It's this. Um, so Breaking Bad, I only watched the first and last episodes. There's this um, poem to Ozymandias where he's this this great and powerful god that everyone should like worship and like look down upon. Uh, look at my works. I'm a, this amazing being. And then you you think about it, and he's he's lost in the times of in sand, right? <laughs> like all the all the things that they built. To this god, and what does it matter? Like every god will die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, that's nice. Um, but I, I think that's where he he gets his name from, and it's um, it's fascinating where his his storyline goes, and you don't remember that, and that's crazy yeah, I'm sorry. to me. I can't add anything to that. No, no, no. That's fine. That's fine. I don't actually. I really don't want to spoil that. <laughs> yeah. So what else are you thinking about this? You know, I think it's interesting that we've talked about kind of where he is now. And obviously this, this entire issue is about where he's been and what he's gone through. And now forward – and we've touched a little bit forward thinking like what's going to happen and I don't actually know. But obviously it sounds kind of ominous because he's built this palace for himself now and who knows what type of will he's going to impose upon humanity. But generally speaking, looking at the micro instead of the macro, what do you think he's driven by? You know, For me, it's like a sense of – obviously a sense of order. He just built this glass castle or whatever. Mm. But also, is he still driven by this chemistry with other people? Like think about the cold beer. Thinking about reaching out to Lori. Lori says, what should I call you? You know, it's Dr. Manhattan. He says, no, it's actually John. Right. Does he still have that, do you think? Or moving forward, you know, and you might know the answer to this obviously, but is it just going to be now a sense of order rather than chemistry as well? Uh, I, I mean he still has that connection to – people on earth so as much as 
he's driven seemingly by his his apathy toward everything and his desire just for to be alone with his thoughts. It's it's peculiar. I like I saw evidence that he got really excited in the first issue about whatever machine he was working on when he was super large and Rorschach comes in to like tell with, him with about the, with the Julians or yeah, something. Yeah, he was like, oh man, I'm, I'm almost like figuring out how to whatever, uh, advance this one element of science. Um, then later we see him talking with Ozymandias and he, he talks about how he was able to, um, also, uh, man, I'm trying to remember exactly what the details were, but he talks about how he was able to, um, do a leap forward in um, transport and um, and how ad, uh, eugenics had advanced as well. And I feel like he had a hand in how some of this stuff was happening. With the cool-looking lion and everything? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bubastis. And you actually saw, like, they showed New York later, and it still looked like shit with garbage everywhere. And no one had cell phones yet. It's just fun. I just think it's funny looking at these, like, things in the 80s and 70s, you know, what they got right and what they got wrong. You know, right. Well, this was of its time while during the Cold War. So, like, uh, it's it's fascinating how. If you look at page 24 of this, after that, there are airships in, like, in the air over New York. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're they're in the very first uh, chapter. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. You see some little Zeppelins. They got them all over the place. And I I read something about how Zeppelins run on hydrogen, and that's a reflection of um, their god. Dr. Manhattan looking over all of them, too. I mean, the, the parallels that one could read into this, whether, you know, implicit or not, right. I think and, are just fascinating. And, and, and you just pointed at the, I think, the largest panel of the entire issue where he's in Vietnam. And he's obviously this overwhelming American force in Vietnam. And you have the helicopters behind him. And they're just raining fire and Agent Orange down upon these poor, helpless people, mm-hmm. you know. And it's obviously sh- – I think that's obviously one of the main differences – in from from this to the to actual reality, right? Is that they won Vietnam, and they actually talking they talk about in maybe issue two or three what would have happened if we lost? It would have broke the country's back or something, right? Exactly. You know. So the the, the point I wanted to make was you see him here, and he's in kind of this speedo, this chevron weird speedo, and we we before that he was obviously in his outfit or his costume or whatever. Mm-hmm. He and just he, wants to be a naked hippie. He just man. wants to be a naked hippie. <laughs> And he kind of, you know, we see him slowly but surely. And I kind of want to ask you, what are the steps that you see in kind of taking his own life and in t- kind of taking, taking back control, taking back control? Yeah, like what are the steps you see that lead to this? Right. I mean, yeah, and like what I was mentioning was like he seems to love science. He loves advancing stuff. He that that wasn't just a hobby. It seemed like a, like a full on passion that gave him some degree of fulfillment. So. When he goes back to – when he goes to Mars and isolates himself, I mean maybe he sees a little bit of that opportunity to create his own world that he can control everything and and be the god of uh, on Mars. I'm, I mean well, – He loves th- fixing things, right? I mean he was always fixing the watches, whether it was for his dad or it was for Janie. Yeah. You know, so yeah. So I mean I, I could absolutely see if he like is living on Mars for that long, him – Making his own, I mean, I don't know. I don't get like super nerdy. Like he's like making his own fake dolls and being like, "Oh, and this is how this like whole like this whole interaction should go." No, I, I think the castle is bespoke. the The father is okay with me getting with his sixteen year old daughter because that's how 
It should be Dr. Manhattan, you creep. <laughs> um, okay. So I, I, I like this idea of this chapter in particular, having him bounce back and forward in time. It really reminds me of a very particular episode of Lost. Because J.J. Abrams, or not J.J. Abrams, uh, Damon Lindelof is going to be taking over and doing uh, the new Watchmen show. And one of the best episodes of Lost was The Constant, where Desmond Hume gets untethered from time. Getting chills right now. And how well Lindelof and his crew are able to tell a beautiful story with bouncing around through time. I mean, he he does it in The Leftovers, too. Holy hell. They'll tether through time, uh, like, uh, toggle through time. And, man... Just, just like a chapter like this, I'm like, yes, I want to see what you do with Doctor Manhattan in your world. Exactly, and There's, I think that's why it's in good hands, you know. And I don't know if it's going to be the same cultural phenomenon that a few other, you know, HBO shows have been recently. Mm. But I think it will satisfy viewers in that sense because he does have experience with this, and obviously he likes this material. People are hungry for a. Big blockbuster show. It's not going to be it. That's kind of nerdy. It's not going to be it. Maybe. It's I don't, not going to be it. I, I, I feel it can't be it because this seems more in the vein of Westworld than Game of Thrones. But Game of Thrones is like a, a high stakes political thriller. And the fact that everyone no, glommed no. onto that because there's also no. dragons exactly. is crazy. So for me, Game of Thrones, I watched the first few episodes. I got bored. I then four or five years later thought, oh, I remember there were baby dragons there or eggs. I wonder if those, I wonder <laughs> if those ever grew up. So then I actually watched like season five and I actually saw, oh, we have dragons now. So then I think I've told you that I actually went backwards in time and watched the entire show that way just because I got curious. I can't understand that. How did you yeah. watch the whole thing backwards? It That's just happened. bonkers so to me. So I think that, you know, I think this is going to be even more niche than – than Westworld. And I hope it, you know, I don't think Lindelof is going to view it as a failure if that happens. I mean, I don't care about Lindelof. Like, I'm sure he has a great life, and I actually just could not care less whether he feels satisfied artistically when he Oh, has I, I need him to be happy. Do you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just assume he's in LA, he's having his cortados, and he, you know, he has a nice 401k or whatever. I, I, I don't care about him. But, <laughs> but, I do think that this will leave viewers who like the material satisfied. I just don't think it's going to be a cultural phenomenon because at the end of Game of Thrones, you had everybody from people like us liking it to guys wearing joggers on Rodeo Drive liking it that right. we would have nothing in common with, but we all wanted to see what was going to happen. And you know what's funny about that? Just thinking about the temporary nature of life. When do we ever talk about Game of Thrones anymore? I mean, I'm getting off track, but we talked about it every second. People had bets on it, and I get it. That's the thing, and that's our new, you know, our, our nature now with just looking at headlines and getting on Reddit, and there's like a 24-hour news cycle. But does anybody talk about Game of Thrones? Wait until the, the prequels come out. So we'll oh, see. Oh, the new shows? Yeah, they're going to make more. <laughs> they can't because nothing ever ends. Just like Watchmen says, nothing ever ends. Right. Uh, in the next couple of years, maybe. Uh, oh, I want to tell you one thing that uh, could be exciting. We don't know for positive if Dr. Manhattan will be in the show. I will say that in the trailer, there's either, it could be a flashback of, of a scene on Mars where we see from a big, like a crazy aerial view. Um, like Dr. Manhattan in the castle. But that could have been like from the past. It could be a flashback. I don't know what it was. Um, but if they do get him, who uh, who is his studly right-hand man uh, from The Leftovers? Justin Thoreau. No. Could potentially. I mean, dude, no. he loved getting that guy naked. How, how available is the guy from Powder? 
<laughs> He's like that guy. We need the guy from Fowler. I mean, this was him. Have you watched Barry on HBO? Well, so I've seen it, but don't say anything. No ho, Hank. We're al- oh yeah, that would be but he's too small. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess he can change his size. That's just, the whole thing. Yeah, just go exercise a bunch. <laughs> oh my god, yeah. <laughs> That'd be beautiful. I would... So, so it, be, with the Lindelof connection, and I don't know because I don't like to watch previews. Mm-hmm. Do we have any? You just mentioned Justin. Do we have any others? Yeah, um, Jeremy Irons is is playing Ozymandias. So which one is that? I don't uh, know names. Jer- um, do you remember Die Hard Three? Yeah. The bad guy who's oh, yeah, yeah, Hans yeah, yeah. Gruber's uh, friend okay. or brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The big yeah. reveal. Okay. Jeremy Irons. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why I had to go back to Die Hard with a Vengeance no, <laughs> to fine. reference him. That was great. Uh, there's one other thing I wanted to kind of point out here, and I, I was kind of curious if um, – well, Just really quickly. Was, was Die Hard 3 the one where at an NBA game Bruce Willis tried to say the F word like 30 times because they gave it a PG-13 rating and he wanted to like toughen it up to an R? I don't remember. I'm pretty sure he got in trouble for using – did afford a lot on TV or at least in print. Yeah, you could see what he was doing there. He was mad that it got a PG-13. <laughs> anyway, I don't remember sorry. that, but that's hilarious. Um, they make reference uh, to Janie's watch getting stepped on by a fat man. And the, word, the term fat man, especially with them talking about um, dropping the bomb, Hiroshima, one of the bombs was called Fat Man, the other one was Little Boy. And I was wondering if they... If they were also having um, – was there a little boy in this that was a significant reference aside from him when he was a little boy? So it could be him. But I was like I, I wondered if they were trying to if, – if Alan Moore was trying to have a, a sly reference to fat boy and you know, little – Maybe emotionally he's man, still kind of a little boy. Yeah. Or, I mean at – yeah, at minimum you're right. It was – like we talked about, he had this life plan for himself. He was going to be a watchmaker and then the bomb falls and it changes his life. Here mm-hmm. again, the bomb falls. This guy steps on the watch. These things we can't control and your life changes, you know? But similarly, how um, history repeats itself and nothing ever ends, um, the time period when the bomb fell, everyone thought the end of the world was coming. And now we find ourselves in 1986, 85, when we have um, the the nuclear standoff and going on. Worse. And everyone is like, well, this is the end of the world. Like we are standing right on the precipice of nuclear annihilation. And it it just seems like it's such a, a cyclical thing, and he's seen it before, and he's seen um, how the the remnants they they leave their imprint on everything, and he jumps between all those times. It's just like what's what's the next apocalypse? And the, and you know, and he does that, and it leads him to go to Mars, right? <laughs> and then even when he's on Mars, he can't get away from it, right? Which again shows me that he's human after all. We might be able to take a day off from work, but we're still going to be, you know, demonized or we're still going to be bothered by these things that are bothering us. And we have to get to the heart of it, whether it's you got to take a hike and get in nature or whatever else. I mean, I think he needs more than that here. But again, it kind of shows his – oh, by the way, I see you flipping through. Did you actually read that part after? I did not. The okay, I, Dr. I Manhattan Superpower. I kind of wanted to stick to the – you know, if we can call it source material. But right. anyway. Yeah, we have not um, so far on this podcast touched on uh, any of the little ancillary material at the back of each issue. Okay. But uh, we might eventually do that. Yeah, so far just kind of dancing around it. Yeah. So what do you what do you think about, you know, 
structurally like moving forward in this, like with issue five? And and by the way, I mean, have you read this? Did you read all th- you know the whole thing right before starting the podcast? Are you kind of like me going through issue. By I'm issue? going issue by issue. So you haven't. So you have not had a quick refresher on on issue five. I no, I don't really know. I mean, I think I glanced at what issue five is, so I re- recall enough of what it what is going to happen. I know the beats of it because I was also. Um, I, I looked ahead to a particular issue, which is actually issue six or chapter six. Um, is that so, a barn burner? Uh, it's the one with Rorschach. Okay. And you kind of get his backstory. So I know enough of the, the beats of chapter five. Um, I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to delving into this. And this is a lot of fun. Do you want to uh, join for – Discussing chapter six? I would love to. Chapter I mean, five, I mean? I, I live right across the street. You live literally across can, the street. You can find me. <laughs> yeah. No, thanks for having me on. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, uh, I would say, hey, everyone, go check you out on uh, social media. But I think you don't have a social media presence at all. Yeah. I don't have uh, nothing to plug. Yeah. yeah. I'm just here to have fun. Oh, cool. Well, that's good. That's actually on my bumper sticker. I'm just here to have fun. <laughs> so, if, if this car is a rockin'. All right, guys, we're going to wrap things up there. Uh, Clay LaPointe, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, what, what am I supposed to say? Oh, yeah. Hey, if you guys want to check us out online, you can go to whopodsthewatchman.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We're on all the socials. And uh, we'd love for you guys to go ahead and like us, share us around, um, You know, tag us on, on any cool Watchmen news that you guys see. We love to engage with you guys and talk to you about all that. You can help support the show as well at patreon.com slash whopodsthewatchmen. If you want to kick us a buck or two per episode that we put out, we know we're not into the the big, exciting debut of the show yet. But we are excited to build up and learn more about this world or at least revisit it in anticipation. We'll be back again soon talking about Chapter 5. And until then... Yeah.